This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Richard Aidy. Welcome to The Money. Two years ago this week, the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety delivered its recommendations. They amounted to more resources, more staff, more investment. But the residential aged care sector is facing a financial crisis. It's hemorrhaging money. According to the latest figures from the government, the sector's losing $27.90 per resident per day. Grant Cordroy puts the loss lower at 21.30 a day, but he uses a different method which excludes the most extreme cases. Grant's a partner at Stuart Brown Chartered Accountants, which provides a quarterly update on the sector's finances. The residential aged care sector is going through quite a period of unsustainability. Um, We're seeing an increasing number of aged care homes running at an operating loss and, and a cash loss as well. And if this continues for too much longer, we're going to see potential home closures, more home closures than we've seen over the last few years. So how much are facilities losing then? For the quarter ending September 2022, the facilities are losing just over $21 per bed per day. What does that add up to per annum? If we extrapolated that per annum, it would be loss in excess of $1.7 billion. Oh my God, that's across the whole sector. Across the whole sector. That's obviously real trouble. But as always with these things, there are places that are doing better and places that are doing worse. What about the, I suppose, the, the bottom half or bottom three quarters? The bottom three quarters, which is a real concern, are running at a loss of about $17 a day, more than the 25% in the top quartile. And they're running at a loss of over $38 per bed per day. This isn't everybody, remember. It's the worst performing three quarters. It's less of an issue for big providers, like Uniting New South Wales ACT, which is run by Tracy Burton. Uniting New South Wales ACT is one of the largest in the country. In fact, we're the largest provider of residential aged care in New South Wales. So on any given day, we have 5,600 senior Australians in our care across 61 locations in 75 homes. So that gives you a a very broad perspective on this sector. How would you describe its financial position? I think the evidence is that it's it's dire. It's been um, squeezed and getting harder for a long time and recent pressures like inflation that everyone's facing, but the workforce crises, the pace of reforms that are coming from the Royal Commission which, you know, completed its work two years ago, so lots of change, which is obviously needed but needs to be done in a sustainable way. So it's, it's very tough. And when you say very tough, you like, as you said, you're a large provider. You're probably in a better position than smaller providers. How's your own position? Well, we've seen that sort of gradual decline of our financial performance over the last five years and now that's, that's really speeding up. So we're at what I would call break-even. You hear about 70% of homes in deficit. Certainly some of our homes make up that 70%. But fortunately, we've got a a balanced portfolio. So we're at break-even. The problem for all providers, big or small, is that costs are fixed but income's variable. Nicole Sutton is at the UTS Business School. In residential care, most of the revenue is typically tied to the individual residents. And that becomes really variable because it will change depending on the number of residents in a home on any given day, and that can change, their financial circumstances, which affects their capacity to pay and make financial contributions, 
as well as the complexity of their care needs, because those that have more complex care needs, such as those living with dementia, will attract a high rate of funding. So each of the resident basically comes with a packet of funding in, in, in essence. Kind of, kind of, yes. Yeah. So there's lots of revenue flows that yeah, come yeah. in and it's really complicated, really hard to get your head around. But uh, generally, yeah, most of the, 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 the funding that's coming in uh, is tied to that individual resident. And with occupancy going up or down, on any given day, you might have a resident leave, usually because they've passed away, and you may or may not have another resident come in uh, that day, and you may or may not have a resident comes in with the same circumstances. So this is what we mean, that the revenue is actually really variable. Yet on the other side, a lot of the costs of running a residential aged care home are pretty fixed. You know, we've got the cost of the building and the infrastructure, the maintenance, uh, most of the staffing, keeping the lights on, like you have to incur all of these costs, regardless of how many occupied beds you have or who is occupying those beds either. And although now, there's now a, a fairly wide consensus that people who work in the sector are not paid enough and should be paid more, staffing costs are very significant, aren't they? Absolutely. So staffing costs represent about 70% of all the operating costs that go into residential care. So yeah, they're a huge component. And although there's a sense that, you know, with casualisation and so on, that you can potentially kind of ratchet up or ratchet down your staffing, in reality, that's just not possible. A lot of the staff are already kind of locked in. You think about your maintenance staff, your cleaning staff, the people that work in the kitchens, as well as your care staff and the people that are kind of managing a home who have to be there. Like, I said, regardless of how many people are there on a given day. The margins are tight. 95% occupancy is fine, 89 is not fine. This becomes clearer when you understand that for each resident, there are three revenue streams. The main one, of course, is you're assessed for your care. So a, a resident gets assessed for the, the acuity level and what care they need, and they get paid by a government subsidy on a dollar per bed day figure. Now, the previous um, funding instrument was called ACFI. For Aged Care Funding Instrument. And the new one is called ANAC. Standing for Australian National Aged Care Classification. It only started last October, so it's not in anybody's figures yet. Once a resident is assessed, and they'll be assessed probably in the order of, of $200 to $225 per day, it's up to the provider then to provide direct care services. Now, that's taxpayer funded, 96% of your care, direct care funding comes from the taxpayer. So this is nursing, uh, medication, allied health, that kind of that's thing? That's correct. That's your direct care component. And that's the component that the government, quite rightly, has announced an increase in the mandated minutes. So they've talked about an average of 200 minutes per resident per day, mm -hmm. of which 40 minutes has to be a registered nurse. And that will increase to 215 minutes the year after next. And the reason, rationale for that is that the more direct interrelationship between the care staff and the clinical staff and the residents should lead to better care outcomes. That's direct care. There's also indirect care. So an indirect care component covers your catering, your meals, your cleaning, your laundry, utilities, administration within the home. And of course, they're very important components. It's a different sort of level of funding. The majority of that funding comes from the resident who pay what they call a basic daily fee, which is 85% of the single pension, and that's about $54 a day. And that's the same fee for everybody, irrespective of their means and irrespective of their acuity levels. 
The government topped that up in 1 July 2021 with a $10 a day basic daily fee supplement to help overcome the increasing costs of providing that indirect living. So the providers are getting $64 per person per day. They can get a little bit more if they do charge what we call additional services, which is is you might have uh, more choice of meals or Mm. alcohol, but that's a very difficult regime to implement. So if we just look at that part of the funding, is that sufficient to what it's costing the providers? No, it's not. The funding to provide that service is costing over $7 more, $7.49 to be exact, more than providing that service. So that's the first part that really we need to look at when we're looking at further reforms, Mm. is how do providers recoup that additional amount? Yeah. And for someone listening now, they think, oh, $7 a day doesn't sound like much, but it's $7 a day for every person. Every it's going to quickly, quickly add up. 215,000 residents times yeah. $7 a day. That comes to $1,505,000 a day. And we're not finished. The third part is accommodation, is you're moving into an aged care home. So a resident is actually changing their place of accommodation from their own home or rental property or where they come from into an aged care home. And that's, again, another complicated formula. If you're supported, which means you don't have the financial means, the government quite rightly provides a subsidy for supported residents. For those who do have financial means, and that's about 55% of all residents, they've got a choice of paying a fully refundable deposit or they pay a daily accommodation payment which is calculated and, the, and is currently calculated, just released at a new interest rate of 7.01%. Right. That's got 0.6%, sorry. It was 6.31 not that long ago. And it, was, it was 4% 12 months ago. That's the accommodation component. How well does that cover the actual accommodation costs? Uh, not at all. There's a, there's a significant shortfall in the accommodation of about $13.60 per bed per day because aged care homes, unlike normal homes, you've got to completely refurbish them, renew them, replace them. Mm. So the new residents are coming in to a well-maintained home. So the costs of that additional refurbishment, renewal, replacement are quite significant. And it's likely that an aged care home only has an effective life of 25 or so years. Because in 25 years' time, the standard of care and what we require for residential aged care could be totally different to what it is today. All of which leaves residential aged care providers, like Uniting New South Wales and ACT, trying to square the circle. One of the things I find amazing is people often say, oh, aged care is so expensive. And I say, really? Do you think so? You know, you might put a $500,000 deposit down, but that's a deposit. You get it all back and people are always so shocked about that. And then you look at the actual daily revenue that we get from all our sources. At the moment, it's, you know, at the end of last year, $300 a day. I was shocked when I came into the sector and found how underfunded it is. When I arrived five years ago, I did the maths of here's all the revenue divided by here's all the residents served, the days that we'd provided. The number was $265. I rang finance and said, I must be missing some revenue. This Mm. can't be right. And they're like, no, no, that's right. But if it was a hospital, it'd be four times that in a medical ward. If it was a disability 24-7 service, it'd be three times that. Even if you're a bureaucrat and you go to Canberra for the night, you get an allowance of $280, you know, just to have a hotel room and some food. So to provide food and rent and electricity and insurance and quality systems and 24-7 care for that sort of money, that's at the heart of the problem. And that's indeed what the Royal Commission found as well. 
About half of the total, sometimes more, goes on the direct medical care, which means that the food, cleaning, laundry, admin and the costs of the accommodation itself have to come out of the $150 or less that's left over. Two years ago this week, the Royal Commission into Aged Care released its final report and recommendations. The Royal Commission recommendations, you know, the reforms are needed, but they definitely have put pressure on the system and they're having unintended consequences. So it's really important if we can encourage this government to sort of pause and evaluate what's happened so far and then say, let's work with the sector and say, let's make sure these reforms are having the effect that we want, which is to make life better for our senior Australians. Those unintended consequences, what are we talking about? Well, it's things like, um, you know, we now have an independent workforce going around and assessing every resident to say how much funding they should get. They're registered nurses. There's an international shortage of registered nurses. You know, let them come and actually participate in the team and, and help. Like, by all means, come and audit us to make sure that we are judging the funding. We're not trying to rot the system. You can do a regular audit and check on that. But to have people in cars going from this home to that home, assessing two residents here and one there, it's a terrible waste of a precious workforce. You know, the other things are that, you know, just the administrative burden that's come on with all the additional governance. Mm. The systems changes. We've spent over one and a half million dollars just changing our systems to do the new billing for the new billing system, the new reporting for the quality system. It all adds up. And as you said earlier, we are big. So we can sort of, I guess we can manage that to a degree. But for small providers, I just don't know how they are managing it because we haven't received a dollar to help us with expenditure like that. So there's no money for implementation costs, changes of systems and processes, that kind of thing? For small providers, I think they can apply for mm. some support, but for large providers, no, we've had to fund all of that ourselves and that's been part of the contributing factor to why our financial results are speeding up in terms of their deterioration. There's been another factor as well. People with relatives living in a Western Sydney nursing home are insisting they be allowed in to visit as the COVID-19 death toll at the facility climbs to 11. More from Jean Kennedy. Anglicare confirmed late yesterday that four more residents had died at Newmarch House from COVID-19, taking the toll to 11. COVID was devastating for the sector on multiple fronts. Mm. I mean, not least of which in terms of the impact on older Australians and their families, as well as frontline workers. But in terms of the financial woes of providers, it definitely has caused problems by increasing, you know, the expenditure on infection control, disrupting service delivery. And on the other side, what's happened as a result of COVID is that we've got a worldwide shortage of healthcare workers, worldwide, particularly for nurses. Again, at the time, the exact time, they were expecting staffing to increase within residential aged care homes. So just as the Royal Commission has rightly upped its expectations, it's become harder to actually meet those expectations. Indeed, absolutely. That's exactly to the point. As well as that worldwide shortage of healthcare workers, there's a shortage of aged care workers. Many were burnt out in the pandemic and left the sector. And closing our borders cut the normal supply of new workers. Tracy Burton from Uniting. One of the problems we have right now in the sector is with workforce shortages, we're needing to close beds. So, for example, our home in Armidale, we have 15 beds offline because we can't find the staff to open them. 
So that then affects the economics of that home. It desperately affects the local hospital because they've got, you know, a reduced capacity to discharge their seniors to. It puts terrible pressure on families if they can't find a place to go. So the contraction of the beds, you know, a bit like occupancy, you know, has has a significant effect. It has this sort of ripple. You still have the same fixed costs. You still have maintenance costs. You've still got plant investment costs. You just don't have 15 people with their attached funding. Exactly. So the economics are, are really affected. It's electricity costs. It's, as you say, the lights have to be on. The insurance has to be paid. The clinical governance systems that we have to keep people safe all have to go on. So it's just a further squeeze. So taking beds offline has huge implications for us as providers, but it has huge implications for the community as well. On the money today, we're looking at residential aged care. As you've heard, the numbers just do not add up. The sector's heading for a loss this financial year of somewhere between $1.7 billion and $1.9 billion. It's not a sustainable situation. So how can we change that? Nicole Sutton from UTS Business School has four ideas. We need to do things that are going to slow the demand and the growth of demand for subsidised aged care services. So what does that mean? Well, it's really boring. It's like eating your vegetables. But we need for people to be healthy throughout their lives. Being healthy and having a good well-being, what it does is actually prolong, potentially alleviate, mitigate the need for more intensive services later on. It also means, for example, you know, investing in primary care. Just recently, Mark Butler is with the Medicare Task Force. Yeah. He's, he's been speaking about the importance of primary care in supporting other elements of the healthcare sector and alleviating the pressure on other parts of the health, healthcare sector. And that includes aged care as well. So that's really important. And the other thing that I'd probably put in that bucket um, would be about supporting informal carers. Because so, we, we don't pay for anything like the amount of care they provide. Deloitte did a report a few years ago and this was looking at the, you know, the economic value of informal care. Yeah. And I think they estimated it, you know, and I think it's really conservative, about $80 billion per year uh, if we had to pay people that same amount. And I think that's really conservative. And just to kind of give a ballpark figure, you know, the age pension is roughly about $50 billion so yeah, each okay, it's year. it's massive. So it's massive and this is unpaid work that people do. Now, I don't, I'm not suggesting that people are doing this because of some expectation of paying. Informal carers tend to be family and friends, loved ones, and they play a critical role in helping people stay at home and maintain their independence for longer. And so it's really important that we support them in that role and things like respite are really critical. So there are respite services available, uh, but most of them tend to be in residential care settings. What we're missing right now is much more community respite, which is the sort of respite that people want in the communities. And again, if we invest in those sorts of things, that can help carers, uh, that gives them a break, but allows them to continue to care for their loved ones longer. And that overall alleviates the pressure for the more complex residential aged care. All that is turning down the tap. What's the next bit? So the other things we need to do is we need to then use the resources that we do have more effectively and more efficiently. So I guess on the effectiveness side, this means that we need to make sure that the sorts of services that we're subsidising are the best ones to give us the best outcomes for older Australians. Give me an example. 
So within the whole aged care kind of government spending, a tiny fraction amount is spent on restorative care or what's or rehabilitation right. or yeah. things that okay. re-enablement. And this is actually really important because things like if we, for example, pay for allied health like a podiatrist mm-hmm. um, that can help someone with better mobility, yep. they may or may not need then to have around-the-clock care. Uh, so investing in those sorts of programs is really good for an older person, helps them achieve a a level of re-enablement, uh, and it's better for financially for the system as well. Uh, and it also helps support allied health, which are actually really important part uh, of the sector. So that would be one example. And these are really important programs, but they represent right now a tiny fraction of what we spend. What about workforce efficiency? Yeah, I think it's dangerous to think that we want to make workers more efficient because uh, workers are already absolutely going hammer for tongs. But there are big holes right now. You know, one of the things we came across in our research is that, you know, right now we've got turnover at about 40%, 40%. each year. 40% of HK workers in residential care yeah. are leaving their organisation each year. And that's a huge cost lost knowledge, lost productivity, the costs of hiring, the costs of training, notwithstanding the potential negative impact on residents mm. who have different people, as well as the existing staff who have to, you know, train up and absorb that pressure as well. So I think we really need to attend to things like staff turnover if we're going to get, and this is what we mean by a more productive workforce. It's not about getting each individual worker to work more. It's organising the workforce in a way that overall is more efficient. The pay rise is going to help. I think having better work conditions mm-hmm. and having, you know, better career paths so that people can see a really clear projection or trajectory for their career and they, they stay in the sector as well. Yeah. Okay, that's three. I feel the last one's the hard one. It's the hardest one. Okay, in the sense that all of those things combined still doesn't like get us away from the demographics that we're facing, you know, with with the changing kind of population demographics that we're seeing over the next 40 years. Mm. And so we do really need to think about how we are going to split the funding between taxpayers and the people who use aged care services. This is what's called co-contribution. Tracy Burton. A sustainable funding solution for aged care is the unfinished work of the Royal Commission. They came up with beautiful recommendations about how to make the system better for our seniors, but they didn't um, tackle the funding solution. And what's really important is that as a community, we have a debate about this. Mm. Should the bill go to young taxpayers who are struggling to find homes to rent and homes to buy and mortgages? Mm. Or perhaps should part of the bill go to those Australians of means? You know, retirees, the Callaghan Review found that most retirees pass away with 80% of their superannuation intact. So why don't we use a bit of that? Most of them don't have a mortgage on their home anymore. So why don't we use a little bit of what people have put away during their lives to help fund a better aged care system? Because the diminishing taxpayer base won't be able to afford it. And the intergenerational inequity of expecting the taxpayer base to, to fund it, I think, is a problem as well. Whenever this is put forward, there's, well, a traditional response. I think we bump up against something where a really widely held view that people have paid taxes all their life, so they deserve to be taken care of. And I can really understand that. But what does taken care of mean? Um, I think it definitely and should always mean that there'll be safety nets there for people who have low financial means to be looked after, Mm -hmm. as happens throughout 
our entire life stages, you know. And it also means that if we have significant, you know, personal or clinical care needs, I think there's also a role there for taxpayers to help out in terms of the cost of the care. But I think there is also much more scope for people who do have significant wealth and have, you know, financial means, as many people who are retiring now and will retire will have, to contribute more to the costs of of their care service, particularly things like food and accommodation, which are things that they have been paying for privately all their lives. Just because you are now, you know, in a different age bracket, I don't quite follow the logic that you'd then expect a taxpayer to come in and foot those sorts of bills. The problem with this is many people who need residential aged care are worried about burning through their resources and something else as well. Grant Corduroy. There's always this concern in Australia about inheritance and is there inheritance tax. But our studies have shown that it's not the the children who are saying we want to retain the family home because of inheritance. It's the cohort of residents who, as you quite rightly said, have come through a war. Some might have come through the end of the Depression and they want to leave something to their children or their family that they didn't have because their wealth has been consumed really by their house, mm. increase in house. So so that's a, an aspect. Now, that may change when the baby boomers generation start to move into residential aged care in five or ten years because the baby boomers are more consumers. So they're more ready to pay for for consumption than the cohort that we have now, which is still the end of that, we'll call it the war cohort. At the moment, the government pays about three quarters of the cost of residential aged care. If we want it to be better, that has to change. The people who can afford to are going to have to pay more. In the meantime, there is more money coming from the government for direct care, the ANAC. That started last October, but we don't know yet if it'll be enough. What we do know is that what's paid for indirect care and accommodation isn't enough. And that's having consequences now. Even if we change the settings today to allow more revenue for everyday living and for accommodation, the lag period could be two to three to four years before flow. So you have to grandparent every resident that's in there today yep. and it'll take time. The sector has had five coming up to six years of massive operating deficits. In 2022, it was about $1.4 billion. I estimate about $1.7 billion in 2023. And so if you have six years of losses, it's aggregate to well over, will be over $5 billion worth of losses. So what that has done, that's eroded the capital base. And also because of the financial performance, it's ceased new investment. A new investment could be new people coming in and investing into aged care, or it could be existing providers wanting to renew and replace. Mm. So I think that we can't wait two to four years. I think there has to be some subsidy support really readily to help providers maintain their homes, start to improve it, to get ready for where the reforms will take them to a, to a better standard of aged care and accommodation. Are we kind of looking at the edge of the cliff and we kind of need something to happen before we go off the cliff? Well, I think so. I used probably ill-advisedly from the minister's point of view, but I used the term fiscal cliff. And I think residential aged care is at the fiscal cliff. The only place that money can come from is the government, isn't it, really? Absolutely. And we've got a little bit of history in the sense that during the pandemic, the government paid two tranches 
of assistance to residents aged care because of the additional costs. And they paid $900 per bed for metropolitan homes, $1,350 per bed for regional homes. So if we don't get this funding support now, we are going to see home closures or it's going to compromise some of the, the service delivery. When you say now, Grant, is that this year? What does now mean? Uh, now, for me, would mean from at least from 1 July this year and a second tranche on 1 January of 2024, so that urgent. I think urgent injection of funding will definitely help to shore up the sector. We don't want to see more homes close, and unfortunately I think quietly they are closing. It would be much better if we could shore up the sector and then work together on finding long-term solutions. So a quick injection of funding would certainly help many providers who are, you know, the evidence is in the report. They are financially struggling enormously. Tracy Burton is the Executive Director of Uniting New South Wales ACT. You also heard from Grant Corduroy of Stuart Brown Chartered Accountants and Nicole Sutton from UTS Business School. The money is produced by Kate MacDonald. Our sound engineer today is Roy Huberman. I'm Richard Aidey. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.